Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I am with my dear friend, Dr. Emily Spleckel, who, in my mind, is one of the greatest podiatrists in the world. How's that? I love it. (laughs) She's the founder of the Evidence-Based Fitness Academy. She's world-renowned, travels everywhere, teaching people barefoot education and respect to training, and I just always go back to Emily because she's got the stuff. She's, I mean, just, I follow a lot of people, and I just don't know anybody that delivers it better than her. Are you pumped now or what? Oh, I'm totally blushing. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, did I, I was going to say it and I forgot. Did I mention that she's also the only aerialist that I know? Really? Well, I think so. Wow. I'm, I'm surprised. Ariel is is the new hot thing. Everybody wants to be in the circus. Well, you're in New York. <laughs> I guess maybe that's. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, lately the thing with me is everybody that I work with plays in the mud. You know. Oh, oh yeah, with the tough mudders and stuff oh, like that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's 99% of my audience, by the way. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that's fun, too. All right. So that's round one, right? Yes. The dinging. <laughs> That was totally the signal of round one start. So, Emily, as uh, we spoke before we kind of got on board here live with my audience, one of the things that I think would be awesome for you to help us to better understand is where in the heck do you put your foot when you make contact with the earth while you're running? And can you talk about the sequencing the necessity of mobility and the generation of stability and how that chain of events takes place. Is that a good setup? Yeah, that, that works. So um, we're talking about transitioning and understanding the transition from a heel strike to a midfoot strike. That would be a great place to start. Okay, cool. So um, the biggest difference, between those two strike patterns is not even about what part of the foot is contacting the ground first, but more where is the foot contact in relation to the body's center of gravity. That would be a better way to focus on it. Where you want it to be more centered underneath the body's center of gravity when you're doing a midfoot strike. Uh, why this is important and why thinking about stride length is important is because that ultimately influences the amount of impact forces that are entering the body. And most, 
say 90% of running related injuries are impact related injuries. So if you can correct your running gait pattern, whether it's your foot contact, it is your stride length, it is, you know, a thoracic rotation, all of those things influence the way that your body transfers and brings in impact forces. So you want to be as efficient of a runner as possible, not from a you can go further, longer, faster standpoint, but because that's going to influence your injury risk. Um, when you transition to a midfoot strike, if you are still placing your foot too far forward, so you still have a longer than normal stride, you're actually bringing in higher impact forces than that running pattern actually should have, which means now there's this increase in stress that your connective tissue has to deal with. That increase in stress typically goes into your bones, so that's where you could get a stress fracture. Um, you might start to get top of foot pain, which is what a lot of uh, midfoot strikers complain of when they're transitioning. Uh, and oftentimes when you get top of foot pain, there is something with your stride pattern. You probably are still overstriding to some degree. Um, or those increased stress or impact forces are going to go into your connective tissue, which could be plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis. So um, our running pattern is very important. Your foot placement for a midfoot strike does need to be closer towards your center of gravity. And the rhythmic uh, fluidity of the movement needs to be there. So um, if there's any trying to control, uh, and what we were talking about, some of the most common injuries that we see when people are transitioning, is that they are trying to consciously stop the heel from hitting the ground. So, which means that your your calves, for even though it's more than just your calves, but your your muscles are trying to break to stop the heel from hitting the ground, and they haven't fully completed being a break before you quickly recoil into acceleration. And that's actually how you get a calf strain. So if any of the people who are listening and they get um, not just Achilles tendonitis, but more like they feel like they tore their calf muscle, for lack of an easier way to explain it, that would be you essentially, your muscle fibers were trying to go into some sort of a lengthening pattern and you were trying to shorten them while they were lengthened. And that kind of quick switch, like it's, it's a quicker than natural switch and the timing is off that you actually pull into the muscle fibers. So um, that's important to know if you're presenting with a lot of calf pain, like literal muscle pain, you may be trying to contract the muscles consciously in a way that's fighting the natural fluidity of the movement pattern. Um, if you think of fascia, whether it's your plantar fascia, your Achilles tendon, or the literal fascia that surrounds all of your muscles, our ability to move dynamically and gracefully and eloquently, even as a runner, you should be graceful, um, is that's all based on your fascia. And your fascia has to be a rubber band. 
if you don't have enough rubber band effect of your tissue because you just don't have that elasticity, maybe you don't do enough myofascial release work, maybe just genetically you have a little bit tighter, uh, more dehydrated fascia, then you are at risk of pulling and micro tearing that connective tissue and then you obviously get pain. So that would be some of the plantar fasciitis that um, midfoot runners get when they're transitioning into that new pattern is they just don't have, they haven't built up the elasticity to their connective tissue to allow that deceleration of the midfoot to heal when they're running. Um, if patients or runners start to get pain, not in the heel part of the plantar fascia, but like in the middle of the fascia, like mid band plantar fasciitis, we'll just call it that. Um, that actually tells me even more so that you have lost your rubber band effect of your connective tissue. So you're at an increased risk of micro tearing and creating what's called a fibroma. So it's just accelerated traumatized tissue that actually creates like a mass of tissue in your arch. So it's called a plantar fibroma. That hands down, I see that in people who stand all day. I see that in people who are transitioning. I see that in very high arches. So if you have, if you're a runner and you're transitioning to a midfoot strike and even just now for those who are listening, if you feel the bottom of your foot and your foot is relaxed, you should not feel your fascia. So your plantar fascia should not be palpable when your foot is relaxed, uh, just you chilling there. If you bend your big toe back, then you should feel your plantar fascia pop out so you put tension on your fascia, right? That's what happens when we walk and we do dynamic movement. If you feel your fascia when your toe is relaxed, you are at increased risk of getting these deceleration, um, elasticity micro tears of your plantar fascia. So you more than a runner that they cannot feel their fascia when the foot is relaxed would need to do a lot of connective tissue work before you even start running. You have to warm up your tissue before you put it under stress. Um, is this making sense so far? Absolutely. I have a few questions, though. Okay. My first question is, what I tell people, and I just want to make sure, you know, you're the authority in this, and I want to make sure that I'm not smoking crack and I'm not giving bad information to people. <laughs> what I try to get people to understand is that there's a sequencing in the chain of events when you make contact with the earth. And first of all, your great toe has to have mobility, not just as you start to land, but more so when you accelerate. Yes. And then what happens is I'm putting my hand on the desk and trying to mimic what my foot would be doing if I made contact with the earth. My, let's call it the ball of my foot, and my toes are engaged with the earth. And then I'm starting to develop some tension in the fascia under my foot, and then I'm going to allow my heel to rest on the ground to complete this position. And by the time this happens, my foot should be very near my center of mass. Yes. And in the course of that happening, before my heel starts to draw up off the ground again, my knee should be posted a little bit ahead of my great toe, meaning that I'm basically creating this eccentric energy all up the posterior chain, and essentially now I'm, I'm, I'm stabilized. So there's an isometric contraction that's leading all the way up into my pelvic floor. 
And from that position, I'm able to create great force in my forward progress, which is going to lend me to open up my hip behind myself, which is going to provide some hip extension, which will ultimately beget hip flexion, draw my knee forward again, in to reset into the gait cycle. Is that relatively accurate? And before I have you answer, let me just say one more thing. I find that if I have runners lead more with their knee, have their foot reside below their knee, slightly dorsiflexed when they make contact with the earth, by the time their foot makes contact, they should be very near their center of mass when they have ground force reaction. And when they lead with their knee like that, they tend to set their foot up in a more neutral posture, which is helping to relieve some of the excessive pronation that, that I see when people pitch their foot ahead of their knee in flight. So in other words, their, their landing is coming askew. They're going onto the virus edge of their foot, the outside edge by the pinky toe of their foot, and then they get that collapse on that unstable pillar because their foot is not near their center of mass. And this is what I tell people we're trying to avoid and what we're trying to create. What do you think? Um, yes. So the closer that, almost thinking of it as um, kind of like stacking, like you want to have that proper alignment for sufficient loading. So things need to be stacked in a certain way. Um, the So you're correct on all of that, on the placement and on the cues. If you um, have too much of a, okay, let's say if it's skewed a little bit, then the demands on deceleration are greater. Let's say that. And then the chances of you not controlling your deceleration, which means you're going to end up pronating or overpronating, is going to be greater. Does that make sense? Yes. I think I understand what you're saying. So I think we're on the same page. Essentially what happens, I'm trying to visualize this in my mind here, and looking at video clips of people, whether they be leading towards their heel first or their forefoot, and it tends to be that when they're trying to transition to their midfoot and trying to get off their heel, that they do pitch their foot well ahead of their knee, which is setting themselves up for a collision because they're overstriding on an unstable pillar. They're, basically, their bodies, I tell people their body's late to the party. When you've thrown yourself in the air, and generally because they're overstriding, the vertical oscillation is great as well because they've got to make that hang time so they can get that leg in play again. They're just too committed to this unstable landing. Is that relatively accurate in your mind? Yes. So if some people can get away with that running pattern without getting injured because they just happen to have the neuromuscular control or the neuromuscular coordination to control that deceleration. However, a majority of us do not have that sort of neuromuscular control or you will have it to a certain point and then you will fatigue and then you will start to feel the stresses of the running and the impact. So, um, yes. If you create a more centered, let's call it efficient, running pattern or strike pattern, the chances of you hitting your fatigue point is decreased. Yeah. Well, what I tell people a lot is it's a function of strength to weight ratio. I see very lean, light runners 
that make a lot of mistakes are capable of running pretty quick and seem to get away with a lot yep. because they're just not they're just not throwing as much load at it and they're strong enough to take it. Then it becomes a function of how much volume they take on and the intensity they take on before things start to break down. Yep, yep, it really is. So in podiatry or medicine, physics, whatever you want to call it, um, we have a tissue stress theory. And every person has their own tissue stress level. And some of it's genetics. Some of it is weight and the things that you were talking about. Some of it is a load. Some of it is injury history. But that's why, you know, you can take five people who have the same foot type, same height, same distance, and they will all get injured at a different, let's say, distance or something like that, or different stress load. Because there's many variables in that, um, which opens a whole nother can of worms of topics. But that's where factoring in like nutrition and stuff like that is also important for endurance athletes and runners and people who are physically active because that affects your tissue stress threshold. Okay. Now, I'm going to take you someplace that we've been before. Okay. And, and I, our opinions change over time. I don't know if yours has. Mine hasn't. But I'm curious to have you speak on what is typically what people look at as a solution to these ensuing injuries. So, in other words, I've started running more often, and all of a sudden uh, something starts to crop up. Maybe I'm having some plantar fasciitis. Maybe I'm having uh, shin splints. Maybe I'm having some hip pain, whatever the situation might be. And then I go to the running shoe store, and the guy leads me to a heavily cushioned shoe. Would you speak on what your thoughts are on that? Well, you know how I stand on this. I know, but I want you see. I need people to hear you say it because they hear me say it all the time, and you know they think I'm crazy anyway, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, okay, so um, how I get people to understand? Let's say cushion. <clears throat> we talk about cushion, um, or is that the first feature of shoes? This cushion. Um, is knowing that impact forces are perceived as vibrations. That's huge. Like if you don't get that and you see impact forces coming into the body as like pressure or pain or I don't know, like there has to be a stimuli, which is why you really need to like think about this and be like, what is the cushion doing? When you hit the ground, the foot-to-ground contact creates vibrations. Almost like if you hit the table or the wall, you create vibrations. Vibrations is that sound wave, but the vibrations in this case would be the ground reaction forces. So the ability to perceive those vibrations, the frequency of the vibrations, is critical to a accurate loading response. When you put cushion in shoes, when you strike the ground, the vibrations get quickly damped or stopped by the cushion in the shoe, which means you don't know how hard you're striking the ground, So, which means the accuracy of your loading response is going to be less. So the more information you can bring in, the more accurate a nervous response your body can create to that information so that's where really when people will say when they transition to minimal shoes 
or even barefoot. If you go walking around barefoot and or running barefoot and you start hitting the pavement, that's painful. So your body auto-corrects because of the pain, that you're not going to put your body in pain. Yes, that's true, but that is massively oversimplifying it, that it's much more related to the vibration and the information that your body needs about your ground to foot contact. That's how you're creating that. So I'm for the shorter distance, and I would say for 99% of cases, I want my patients to be in more minimal shoes. You can train your body to handle more minimal cushion, even walking around. And if you, if you go back to that tissue stress theory, um, everybody who's listening probably has heard of, heard of anaerobic threshold training. I know you have, Richard, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Have you heard of it? But if you think of that, when you actually do like true anaerobic threshold training, you are you keep pushing the edge of anaerobic further and further away. Like you stress it and then you back off. Like you're not you're not going anaerobic. You're like teasing the edge and then you back off. Tease the edge, back off. Think of that exact same thing when it comes to your tissue stress is if you run on concrete, you are stressing your bones and your connective tissue, but you do it in a little dose and then you back off. You don't stress it again for a little bit. You go back, you stress it again. You back off a little bit more, you back off. Eventually what happens is that the your connective tissue becomes more resilient. Your bones, you actually get a thicker cortical shelf on either side of, let's say, the metatarsals. So the cortical shelf on the metatarsals actually becomes thicker, which means your bones become stronger. So you can then train your body to handle more and more stress, but you have to do it in that exact same way as that anaerobic threshold training. So cushion as saying like, well, when we were, the body was designed and blah, blah, that we didn't have concrete. So now we need all this cushion because of concrete and these unnatural surfaces. That's true. However, the human body is able to adapt to these increased stresses because that's what makes, you know, human physiology fascinating is that we as humans are very adaptable. That's, you know, human nature. It's the selection process. <laughs> so um, I, I am a strong believer even in those cases of trying to not have that cushion. If I have a patient or there's a runner who's very susceptible to stress and they're not willing to build or increase their tissue stress level the appropriate way, then they have no choice but to use cushion in the shoes so that they don't get hurt. But that's not the the proper way when you look at the human body and natural movement and how our body was actually designed to respond to stress is not to have these artificial structures to be the crutch in that process. Um, you know, ultra marathons, that's a little bit different. You're exceeding the natural physiology of the human tissue. So that's where hokas and things like that um, start to fall into place. For the majority of runners, the majority of my patients, cushion should not be needed. And you just need to train your body to, to deal with that. What I've told people, and I deal with a lot of ultramarathoners in the sport of OCR, which is 
where I spend a lot of my time, mm-hmm. they do a thing called the Ultra Beast, which, okay. which is on average 30-some-odd miles with uh, many, many obstacles tossed in the fray and generally conducted over mountainous terrain. For example, the World Championships coming up October 1st will be at Lake Tahoe, starts at about 9,000 feet, and I think the peak of the event goes to a little over 11.5, and they go up and down essentially twice for the Ultra Beast. Okay. And in OCR, most of these athletes, because of the obstacles and the requirements to get in and out of water, to go up slant walls and all the various things that they need to do, which requires more movement accuracy in their functionality, they don't wear heavy-soled shoes. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't. And then what ends up happening is when they're training often, they make a mistake, I believe, in where they would transition to something like a hoka or a really heavy-soled shoe because they think they're going to be on pavement and that's different. And now they have all this transitional confusion between the way their body is typically dealing with ground force reaction. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so the the nervous system is very... um, Think of like transfer of learning for an athlete is the exact same thing when it comes to impact forces. So you really do want to train on the surface and with the footwear, which is going to provide the information that you would use, let's say, in your competition or your race or whatnot, because the body builds these subconscious motor patterns, like a subconscious loading response to impact forces, which is happening extremely fast. It's actually happening before your foot even contacts the ground, that that type of neuromuscular control or neuromotor control has to be built in. Anytime you start putting cushion and barriers between the foot and the nervous system and the ground and all of that, you start to train this inaccuracy. And um, I like to use, I know it's not like endurance to the extreme of like an ultra marathon, but uh, parkour athletes who do parkour barefoot and they're jumping on concrete. They have some of the best uh, adaptability. And that's a big thing. If you follow parkour, those who are listening are not as familiar with parkour, you can find kind of the science behind parkour and the demands that they put on their body and the depth of squats and movements that are like three-dimensional movements with every jump that they do or whatever. And they're able to tolerate that because they train their connective tissue for adaptability. We kind of want to think of it that exact same way, especially if you're doing a long-distance obstacle course where they do have to climb a rope, climb a wall, do this, but run. I would be looking at the... Uh, three-dimensional adaptability of an obstacle course, kind of like parkour versus trying to compare it, well, oh, I need to run and train for long distances. Like it should be much more in that adaptability side. And if you train and you look at the body that way, then your connective tissue is going to be much more of a rubber band. So 
that would then ultimately decrease your risk of injury. So I agree 100% with what you're saying, that these athletes should be training not in hokas, not in cushion shoes, um, that they should allow for sufficient adaptation in their connective tissue by doing it in that stress theory threshold that I was speaking about. And what I also find, and, and again, going back to those that run long, you know, I, I, I'm sometimes combative when I feel like I'm on a rant. What I tell people is that when they get into these very cushy, high lifted shoes, that they're giving themselves creative license to be irresponsible with their movement patterns. And then I see all sorts of dysfunction in the way they run, and they're reliant upon these cushions to basically keep them from being hurt relative to the mistakes they make. And then the mistakes become expounded. They get they get greater. They, they start making greater and greater error in the way they move. And it seems like at that point, you're just lost. You're not, you're not really depending on good movement uh, decisions. You're just depending on the mattress to, to protect you from yourself. Yeah, but and I agree. But the injuries probably that would result, let's say, in a obstacle course, long distance with soft cushion shoes or like a disassociation from the feedback of the ground, that's going to be a major injury. That's not going to be like, oh, I have a stress fracture. That's going to be like you fractured your ankle and need to have like serious surgery. Like the injuries are going to be much greater than like, oh, my shin hurts. Do you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and you know what? If you if you do any uh, following of the sport, and social media, I have friends that are always posting pictures of their swollen, strained, sprained, broken ankles. Yeah, exactly. So, and that your your ankle is the most uh, sensitive or vulnerable joint when it comes to anything close chain like that. So, you know, that's a massive injury which it's not like oh walk it off it's more like okay now you just tore every ligament in your ankle and you are set up for a life of ankle sprains or ankle injury oh yeah, or, yeah. you know what i mean so i've seen some serious ones in um obstacle races and crossfit and they're they're not like little injuries they're not tweaks they're like you need to be on crutches and need surgery and they're usually Serious surgery or Even worse, this type of thing, and I, I know I have friends that are going to hear this, and I'm talking to them, <laughs> but they um, may injure themselves mid-event in, a, in an event that is 30 miles. Maybe they've, they've actually sprained, strained, or even broken their ankle 10 or 15 miles into the event. And because they feel like they're being a puss if they stop, they continue to march on, which is absolutely ridiculous in my mind. That's the adrenaline talking. <laughs> you know, as a coach, it just frustrates me to no end when when I see this type of thing. Because especially when you're an elite athlete and your focus is to win races, you're basically shortening your career span. You're, you're putting yourself in a position where you're highly receptible to reoccurrence even the apprehension that you have even when you're not even uh, conscious of it is going to disrupt your performance in future events you're just always worried about it 
and maybe even alter your gait because you're concerned that something that you're doing is causing you to cause these problems. It's just really ugly. Yeah, I mean, you. it honestly is the more that you, the less that you know, almost the better you are. Because <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to understand where the high side is on that. I I. I, I mean, that's where sometimes I wish I knew much less than I do, because then I would be less... Uh, Apprehensive? Yeah, like I would just go for stuff versus like, oh my God, I'm going to get, you know, osteomyelitis and then my whatever, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I guess I understand that point. Uh, <laughs> what they call that ignorance is bliss, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay, so uh, we've talked about a lot of things here. I almost kind of want to circle the wagons here and just kind of think in terms of because of you, incidentally, I've, I've, I've ranted often to my clients about the importance of exercising barefoot, short foot, um, basically finding the ground and just kind of encouraging this neural activation and recruitment patterns, you know, while you're not under pressure. Can you touch on maybe a few things that you think that these types of folks would probably want to do to help protect them, hopefully, from future injuries and get them into a better place as an athlete? Uh, related to barefoot? Just barefoot. the general mechanics. And, of course, we're, gonna, we're from the ground up. That's you. Talk to me about how all what you do is important for what they do. Okay. Um, so I look at, and I use, um, and this is maybe where Richard, you've seen my stuff kind of evolve a little bit is it's not just focused on, okay, you have a strong foot. You need to strengthen your feet. If you're a runner, um, and you're wearing minimal shoes, you have to have a strong feet. Like, yeah, that's, that's important. I, I obviously still promote that, but my, now, now to bring that even to, let's say, like the 2.0 version of that is that your strong feet have to be talking to a strong core. And if they're not talking to each other, it really is no good. So you could have like a badass core, badass feet, but if they're not talking to each other in a reflexive, very quick way, then you're still going to get injured. So it's actually that sequencing of how I focus on all of my programming now and when I work with my patients. So I do a lot of um, pelvic floor activation. And I, I believe that before you run, before you do any uh, dynamic movement that's going to stress your uh, neuromuscular system or your body connective tissue, you need to make sure that your deep pelvic floor is activated and is communicating with the intrinsic or deep muscles of your feet. And thankfully, they're connected to each other by fascia, which makes them makes just total sense. So when I do short foot, I actually cue people to time their short foot with their pelvic floor. So the way that I start to introduce that is um, I would say, um, okay, be on your back with your knees bent 
and your feet flat on the floor. So you're getting into kind of like a Pilates, so you're doing Pilates position in a sense, and identifying the pelvic floor. You could even do this seated. I'll do this seated while talking to you. Is understanding and identifying that your pelvic floor is your fascial hub. This is in men too, that men need to be able to tap into their pelvic floor because it's your fascial gateway to stability of your entire body, not just your core, but your entire body. So when you properly engage your pelvic floor, the way that I explain it to my patients is nothing like a Kegel. So if any of the listeners have done Kegels, you want to put that out of your mind. The appropriate way, if you're sitting and listening, is if you stop your poo. I'm going to be crude. I'm a doctor so I can get away with this. Stop your poo. Okay. When you stop your poo, you should feel that there is a radiation, a fascial or a proprioceptive or a sensory radiation into your butt. Do you feel that when you do that, Richard? I'm doing it right now. Okay. So, So, Richard, when you stop your poo, do you feel that it radiates into your backside? Of course. Okay. So, if you stop your pee, do you feel that it radiates to the front of your abdomen? Yes. Okay, great. So that's what I want my patients. That's step one. If you feel that, okay, good. We've got a, got a great thing. So when you stop your poo, that's your posterior pelvic floor. And your posterior pelvic floor, which is your levator ani, if you want to know the muscles, is myofascially blended into the deepest fascial fibers of your glute max which means if you want strong glutes, which runners need to have strong glutes, you have to have that connection with your pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor has to lead into the glutes, to, the glute strength versus strong glutes and who cares about my pelvic floor. When you engage your anterior pelvic floor and it radiates forward, that's what's called your transverse abdominals. And your transverse abdominals is the most important muscles to keep the front of your hip stable. I will not go into the anterior pubic joint and groin <laughs> with that as much as I want to. However, just know that that's important to anything in the front of your legs. Well, touch on it, touch on it. Somebody's well, going to get this. So yeah, why, of, why deny them, right? I, yeah, a lot of runners and runners who are listening or any of your athletes that are listening is if they experience groin pain, if anyone out there is experiencing groin pain, What is most likely happening is that your pelvic floor, which leads to your transverse abdominals, is not happening fast enough, which means you're doing movements without being stable. So you then grab onto the muscle that you can actually touch. If you can touch a muscle, you don't want that muscle firing before your pelvic floor, essentially. (laughs) So... That's that's very common in runners because the flexion of running and just the, the repetitive movement of running actually starts to uh, deactivate the deeper muscles. So you, that means you just want to start your running session by activating and waking up your nervous system. So another way that you can get into your pelvic floor, and this is the way that yoga actually explains it, is that it is just a lift. Think of literally lifting your perineum. Again, I can get away with saying all these things, my perineum talk. So the 
you want think of it always as lifting. Pelvic floor is a lift. It's an anti-gravity muscle. When we tie this into the foot, every time you do short foot and you lift your arch, you should be lifting your perineum at the exact same time. If the perineum thing doesn't make sense, then you can lift or stop your poo at the same time because that's your posture pelvic floor. I time this with breath, which means on your exhalation, your exhalation should always be exhaling. When you exhale, your diaphragm has to lift. When your diaphragm lifts, your pelvic floor lifts. When your pelvic floor lifts, your arch lifts. Does that kind of make sense how I'm trying to stack? Yeah, yeah. But my, my fear is that I, I'm thinking in in my world when I'm trying to get people on cadence and, and make transitions to the way they're making contact with their feet, they find this to be like so much to think about. And this okay. just seemed like a lot to think about. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> this is super don't, – don't think about this too much. Don't overthink this. Not just anyone in the world. Stop your poo, stop your pee, <laughs> lift your arch, and your goal. Okay. Right? So, no, right. But you're doing this. The, the thing about this is that you do it before you run and then just boop, put it out of your mind and go run, right? So you want to be able to have that lightness. Essentially what I'm doing is I'm lifting all of your fascia so that you can float when you're running. Does that make sense? Like kind of that's, that's where this is beneficial. So it's, a, it's basically a preparatory uh, set of uh, engagement that's going to help you to be in a better place when you start to move. Yes, this is with everything. So I have certain patients who have to do this when they first wake up. And this takes like five minutes. This is not a complicated thing. Do this when you're brushing your teeth. I don't care, right? You're, you're not going to be timing the breath and all of that. But you can start to move your pelvic floor when you're waking up and whatever. Um, and then you go walk about your day. If you are going to be training, especially with the, the different obstacle course, like that's where that actually concerns me a little bit more than just the running is because when you're fatigued because you're and you're all out, you have adrenaline, so you're not really thinking about timing and things like that. A lot of injuries, like let's say hip groin injuries in obstacle races, CrossFit, things like that has to do with fatigue of the deeper stabilizers. So if you make it the foundation of how you warm up your body, the chances of you getting hurt, like in a larger way, will go down. So, again, not trying to make this too complicated. No, I got you. So what it is, is just think of this activation as your anti-gravity activation, which makes you more stable. So when we actually run and strike the ground, you should actually have a force going in the opposite direction. Does that make sense? Yes. So, okay. So an example, so I was watching Ninja Warrior. Maybe some of you people watch Ninja Warrior. I don't know. I'm obsessed with that show. Um, is when you're jumping at something. So say they're going to jump and, like, grab something from, like, 10 feet away. They... I mean, they're not like jumping and just like ramming into the, the tree, for example. Like if you're going to ju jump and hug a tree, you can't like plow into the tree and then you're like, boom, you know what I mean? You actually have, as you're jumping to grab the tree, you're actually moving in the opposite direction at the same time. Does that make sense? Like as I'm landing, I'm actually 
lifting as I'm landing. So as I'm jumping to grab the tree, I'm decelerating and trying to like pull away so that I land soft and grab the tree. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, cool. That's kind of, think of the pelvic floor and the foot to core connection that I was just speaking about is kind of what I'm trying to get that to do, your nervous system to do without you even thinking about it is that when you run, every time you strike the ground, you're actually lifting as you are landing, which controls the amount of impact coming in your body. That's the point of this whole thing. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it was, it's it just, you have to think of it, think of it a little bit. You have to try to imagine this uh, communication between ground contact and your pelvic floor, I'm sorry, and how that interrelationship causes you to be more stable. Yeah, so it's a deeper, like, it's almost like your internal core of your body. Like, this is this is our core, but think of your core, like, your think of your abs and your, like, center, your trunk, as, like, an apple. And an apple has a rind, right? Like, that's the core of the apple. That's the rind. That's where you need to be stable. Right. That's, like, your entire body needs to be stable, like, deep inside, like, next to the bones, not outside the muscles that you can see. You know, uh, I just thought of a good analogy. And, okay. And you tell me whether, again, I'm wrong. This is what I was thinking just now. Okay. Have you ever dove into water from a really high place? Yes. So, I, I mean, I've, I've dove off towers back in the day, might have been 40, 50 feet, and... On the way to the water, you're preparing your body for the impact. Yep. Right? So, in, in essence, what you're doing is you're trying to create this tensegrity through your body to prepare yourself for that impact. And that's yeah. essentially what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why, like, when you look at divers in the Olympics, I mean, they are ripped. They're ripped because they're tensing every muscle in their body. They're ripped kind of like a gymnast that's used to taking tension. Think the exact same thing. That's a great analogy. I like that. I might steal that. Man. <laughs> well, as always, Emily, cause to enlighten and support my cause, and I love you for that. I'm going to be on the East Coast next month. Oh, you are? Yeah. We're doing a clinic in Killington, Vermont. Oh, that's a big ski area. How far are you from there? Um, Probably three hours. Yeah. Three hours from there. Well, we're going to be there October 21st, 22nd, 23rd. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to do some gait evaluation. We're going to do some running drills. We're going to do some heavy carries up and down the mountain. And I'm bringing my metabolic cart. We're doing VO2 testing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So if you ever thought, you know, it'd be nice to be in Vermont right about now, I'd love to have you come down, hang out. Send me the information. I have, earlier that week, I have a conference in Arizona. Okay. So I, will. I, I would have to do it on the on my return. It would like, be so much fun. We could uh, maybe share a glass of wine. And uh, it's a, a beautiful little resort. The uh, The host is, uh, it's called the, uh, the the Cortina Inn. Nice little little resort. And the guy's all about it hook you up with a room. You can come hang out, share your pearls of wisdom with some folks. I'd love to get a chance to finally face-to-face -face with you. Yeah, I know, right? It's been years of 
Skyping. I know. I know. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Let's give people how to find you because now I know they're all dying to know how to find Emily. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find us on YouTube, youtube.com backslash EBFA Fitness. That's also my website link, ebfafitness.com. So ebfafitness.com. I have a blog called barefootstrongblog.com. I have a book called Barefoot Strong. You can get that at barefootstrong.com. Uh, of course, we're on all the random social medias, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Um, but again, biggest biggest thing that I want people to know when I speak about barefoot is that to me, barefoot is not barefoot running per se. It's about how we need to change our perception to the ground, like foot to ground contact and how that links to the core. So I do talk about the core a lot. So if people want to see videos, there's videos on the YouTube channel. Um, there's movement prep that I do. There's the exercises that I do. And then I have a bunch of video blogs. So blogs, I guess they'd be called. Um on many of these different topics as well. Well, and I have to say to the people that are listening, this education, sometimes it might be a little deep, but you just kind of pick at it. And you'll start noticing that as you listen to these webinars and these V-blogs or whatever they're called, and listen to the way she's explaining things, you'd be surprised at how quickly you start to pick up on it. Just like neurological engagement, this is cerebral engagement. You start to learn and you start to pick up on it. And I think it's a valuable, valuable asset to have someone like Emily out there working with. Emily, again, thank you so much. And I'm going to send you this information. And if you you can make it to uh, to Vermont, I, I certainly would love to meet with you. Yeah, absolutely. Please send the information my way. All right. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. <laughs>